And now it's time to bait our hooks, cast our nets, drop our poles in the water, and fish for some jokes with Down on the Dock. Well, 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 welcome to Down on the Docks, episode 63. My name's Chris Neff, joined as always by the magic man, my partner, Dave Sarah. How are you, buddy? Hello. Yeah, welcome back. It feels like it's been a while. Yes, it does. We're a day late. We apologize. Things happen. Um, Buddy, we got some bad news to start the show. Tell me. You know we are dependent on our quality user reviews. Oh, God, you actually read them? I read all of them. What are <laughs> you talking about? Can't read the plebs. Well, I got to tell you, shit will drive you crazy. It was de- it was bound to happen. Uh huh. But we have finally received uh-huh. our first negative but, review. No, this is gonna start a review bombing campaign. <laughs> I don't care. Hey, this comes from Bleogh. Uh, also by uh, somebody that calls themselves Kyle Sita. Mm. these do oh by the way it's for sure it's uh unique then oh who knows (laughs) it goes these dudes are dumb definitely listen if you want to hear two dudes call women this is great slu blank s so they use the uh asterisk because they were afraid to type in the word slut slits oh shit (laughs) and use the word f-a-g-g uh, asterisk T like it's 2004. <laughs> now here's what I find interesting about this. I graduated in 2004. Yeah, here's what I find it interesting about this. They still gave us two out of five stars. Hey, you know what, dude? <laughs> that's half. A, that's half a perfect dockling right there. Now here's the thing. Um, I've been uh, my heroes have used the word slut since the beginning of time. It's a great word. Uh, Jane, up there with pig Jane, and cow and <laughs> Jane, you ignorant slut, as you may know, yes. was a classic. Uh, that no, was uh, that from SNL? SNL Chevy Chase calling Jane Curtin an ignorant slut. Ah, uh, yes. Now, as for uh, the faggot word, yeah, um, y- y- you got us. I don't know what else to say. I said I drop it every once in a while. Yeah, you, you know, I'll start using the gay f word. There is some good news, Dan. Yeah, we there's get a good some, one. There's a there's a <laughs> bad comment. There's three good ones. Only. Yeah, there is. Um, this comment 79. comes from Jay Grizzle, mm-hmm. uh, subtitled "Hilarious, <laughs> pretty funny, and great concept." Neff is pretty fucking funking funny for someone transitioning Hell yeah! not sure who the other two losers are but they're pretty <laughs> funny too sometimes so oh, yeah. i'm guessing they started with episode one yeah they're assuming there's two losers in addition to me so um once you get to Boy, about, they're gonna hate the ending <laughs> <laughs> once you get to about episode 16 we're gonna there's gonna be one less loser on the show for you to worry about but we we yes. do we do thank you for the comments and again all listeners if you do leave a comment we will read one uh, because they mean a lot to us, even the negative ones like today. Like it's really got me thinking, Dave. I might not use the F word um, as much anymore. I'll be a closet F word user. So just be a pussy. Um, we also are going to start a new segment on the show uh, called Reader Questions. All right. Listener Questions. Listener Questions. This, oh, comes, from, this, th- this comes from Tara Carney Duran, uh, who Tara. literally. Yes. You know Tara? No. Okay. Well, I do now. Maybe. She literally just texted me 40 some 42 minutes ago. 
Oh. Hi, Chris. Curious, how do, you, how do you select the documentaries for your podcast? Now, of course, I responded yeah. with none of your business, faggot. And <laughs> <laughs> she's not happy. No, uh, great question, uh, Tara. So here's the thing. Mm-hmm. If you want to help us, um, you can email at downonthedocs at gmail.com. You can tweet me a suggestion mm-hmm. at um, Chris Neff Comedy or go directly to Down on the Docs mm-hmm. on um, uh, Instagram. Instagram. Down on the Docs pod. Uh, or <laughs> join the Discord because <laughs> the Discord's say, a real help. We have our own yeah. section in there that says suggestions. Yeah, and then you can, you can send me a link. Mm-hmm. Now, the process is simple. It's free. Yes, it's free. The process is simple. You send me the documentary. I watch it. And at that point, I make a decision. Is this going to be great for the show? Will, it, will this be a show? Now, here's the thing. <laughs> there's there's steps to this. There's steps to yeah, this. Fucking level I would say you. about one. Got to go into counting. One about every five we, we accept. Now, here's the thing. I will find an amazing documentary. But if I can't find a transcription for it, then I have to say, hmm, do I want to spend the time and money to get it transcribed. Well, you know that the new thing is just look for the transcriptions yep. and then just listen to them Correct. through so AI, whatever. Here's the thing. Everybody's like, AI can handle AI all voice this, messaging. It can't. We've tried and it's not effective. We so, also use AI way too, like over too much. Like, here's the thing. That- I would suggest if you want to increase your submission rate of me selecting <laughs> the pod, you, not only do you find uh, a, a docu-like, but you say oh there's a script to this leave it in a five-star review yes and there (laughs) (laughs) if it's in a five-star review we'll definitely do it but here's the thing there are many places you can go uh sub like uh scripts uh springfield Springfield springfield.uk is a good source um forever dreaming this is good that you're saying this actually yeah no there so, are sources, uh, but a lot of times when I can't find one, we just use Google Transcribe. I'm telling you, there's also a way with with YouTube uh-huh. to to transcribe. Yeah, I, but we, we got to see we got to see how good it is. Though. Sometimes when I'll I, watch, when I start paying for a Prime again. Yeah, sometimes premium, I'll start watching those I'll transcriptions, and they're not even close. Got it. Um, so yeah, you know they're stuff. like. You know, stuff out there. Yeah, they're yeah. like brisket, and it'll come in faggot, and you know, <laughs> it's just like no, it's not even close. Okay, no, I don't know. Pretty close. Um, we've got an exciting show this week. First of all, thank yeah, you for Kyle, you brisket. Thank you for all the the comments you gave on um, the Cobain situation. Loved it. Got some crazy yeah. art involved with that. Uh, we really enjoyed photoshopping. Really enjoyed your comments there. Now here's the thing. This week's su- suggestion, Eldini. Dave. Yeah, is from user Bex. Yeah, on the Bex. Twi- Twitter's oh, yeah. Zen's producer. So um, before we get into it, because uh, I just blew the lead there. Can you tell our listeners who yeah. this week's show is sponsored by? This week's episode of Down in the Docks is brought to you by Broccoli Farms. Established in 2016 San Diego. By the way, Broccoli Farms 619 on Instagram. Mm-hmm. San Diego, California by Candace entrepreneur Anthony Bird. Our friend Anthony, nice guy. Never met him. Great guy, never met him. Broccoli Farms is a modern take on cannabis brands around the world. By combining new terminology involving cannabis worldwide, Anthony created a cannabis brand that uniquely represents the entire cannabis industry as one. Broccoli Farms. How many times did I say cannabis in that sentence? Three, four, maybe four, five. Four. I think four times. You know what? That's also my fault. The lowest delivery minimum in San Diego, bar none. All right. Cali Kush, buddy. Sticky. It's so thank Steeps. you. Thank you, Bex, for the suggestion of this week's podcast, which is titled The Woman Who Wasn't There. It was released in 2012. Directed by Angelo J. Guglielmo. 
Jr. <laughs> Fucking Guglielmo. Guglielmo Jr. Guglielmo. So. Have you ever heard about this? No, man. Oh, I have so no glad. idea. I'm so no glad. Idea. We're gonna what year did it come out? 2012. Okay. I'd seen it years ago. You're reckoning. And then Bex reminded me about it. Did and I was she? like, oh, this is so mm-hmm. good. We got to do this. Now, Dave, before yeah. we jump into the woman who wasn't there, sure. I would like to, uh, I'm going to start a new segment called Preface. Okay. You know Great. what Preface is? Sure. More work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to preface uh, the woman who wasn't there mm-hmm. by sharing a story uh, that I found while doing a little research on okay. our subject. And the title of the article is called It Spiraled Out of Control. Oh, boy. The, the Fantasists Who Pretended to Be 9-11 Survivors. Oh, so we gave it away. Well, here's the thing. It's the called ti- the, the title. <laughs> you kind of oh. knew, right? I, I didn't put a two and two together, but yeah. Okay, so it's going to be about a 9-11 faker, this fucking documentary. So here's the thing. Uh, Subtitled, Fake Stories of Heroism and Grief Became So Common in the Aftermath of the Terrorist Attacks on the Twin Towers that they became known as the 9-11 sign. Now, this is written by Bevan Hurley from the Independent. Bevan. Dated dated, uh, September 22nd. Bev. 22, so about a year ago. So it starts out like this, and I'm curious if you're going to remember this. An up-and-coming comedian hoping to advance his career. Dice! (laughs) I got the hat! (laughs) You don't get it! A Spanish MBA student with a love of all things American. A firefighter who told of pulling bodies from the smoldering rubble. Yeah, I pulled them. I was there at Starbucks getting my coffee. I pulled them out of the rubble. The point is this. I'm giving you a little bit of a clue. Mm-hmm. One, this is documentary is about one of those people. Okay. From exaggerations to all-out fabrications, the 9-11 terror attacks attracted countless fake tales of heroism and survival, of narrow escapes and lost loved ones. While some sought proximity to the attacks for sympathy or attention, others appeared to become so attached to these false narratives that they came to believe their own lives. Mm. Okay? okay? So common. Right, 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 right. So common we these deceptions become. Uh, like, what's that? It's like it's like Stockholm syndrome before the brain. Yeah, you start to believe this shit yeah. after a while. Yeah. So, you know, the whole point is this person uh, that's interviewed in this article says so common we would these deceptions become among the patients of New York clinical psychiatrist Jean Kim, that she came up with a term for it, the 9-11 sign. Okay? Okay. Now, do you remember the comedian in question? No. With Steve Ranazizi. Oh, the, the one that lied about it? Sure, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. So he said, yeah, yeah. He, he, he lied on stage or off stage also? Uh, I don't recall, but I'll yeah. just give you the information yeah. from here. Years okay, that's after, right, Ranazizi. Years after the attacks, actor and comedian Steve Ranazizi spoke of his own narrow escape from the 54th floor oh, yeah, the of bullshit. the North Tower. Mr. Ranazizi, who had le- a lead role in comedy series The League, yeah. first made the claim in a 2009 interview on What the Fuck podcast with Mark Maron. Quote, yeah, I was there, and then the first tower got hit, and we were, like, jostled all over the place. Oh, God, it's even worse. And then the Port Authority came on the loudspeaker, and they were like, hey, uh, explosion in Tower 1. Things are being taken care of. Everyone remain where you are. 
stay calm. We're figuring things out. And I was like, well, I'm going to go check this out. So I went downstairs, walked outside and saw all of the pandemonium. And then about five or six minutes later, bang. Shit, I thought an Aziziz would be uh, the one crashing into the tower. (laughs) Confronted with evidence that undermined his account, he acknowledged that the story was fiction. In reality, Mr. Ranazizi was at work nearly 40 blocks away in Midtown when the planes hit. It was some fucking Air Force <laughs> Ones that somebody did. <laughs> he repeated the false claims in several other interviews, even claiming his wife had been uh, supposed to have been in the towers, but a delay had saved her life. Wow. He told interviewers that he had those falling dreams for years. Ah. In 2015, Gross. when confronted by the New York Times, Mr. Ranazizi apologized, admitted the deception. Yeah. It is to the fig, uh, victims of 9-11 and to the people that love them and the people that love me that I ask for forgiveness. Sure. It was profoundly disrespectful of those who perished and those who lost loved ones. The stupidity and guilt I have felt for many years has not abated. It was an early taste of having a public persona, and I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> At the time, Mr. Ranazizi was called out by comedian Pete Davidson. Wow. You don't remember this? I, I don't know how, how uh, he called out. He's, so Pete Davidson called him out? Well, yeah, his dad was a firefighter. Yeah. And um, he died yeah, yeah, at yeah. the World Trade Center. And Davidson said, it's okay, Steve. People make mistakes. Can't wait to meet my dad later for lunch. Oh, God. Um, the SNL comedian later had fall, uh, told his followers to take it easy on Mr. Ranazizi, saying he had received and accepted a personal apology for him. We all sometimes <laughs> lie. What a pussy. And it, well, here's it's the thing. Fucking around. It's but here's the thing. Yeah. There, well, Hassan Minaj just got popped with something like this too. Totally different story. But this is 9/11, bro. This is 9/11. Okay. You made up some other shit. Well, according to what I read on this. Yeah. Stolen uh, valor bullshit. Well, what he he, there, he claimed there was some racism from a prom date that he'd wanted to date. Tell okay, me Minaj, Hassan Minaj. Yes, thing? there was, and the somebody tracked this woman down. No, I thought like he. I thought it had something to do with his daughter. No, that's a different. Uh, okay, whatever. Why don't you I'm, let me who reads the <laughs> let's news talk about Renaissance? No, 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 because you just <laughs> sidetracked us, so I got to finish it. Okay. The issue with Hassan Minaj uh-huh. was he claimed to some degree uh-huh. that his prom date was not interested in going to prom because he was Indian. Okay. So his fans tracked down his prom date mm-hmm. and accused her of being racist. Okay. Of course, this was all fiction. It never happened. Okay. The other issue with him yeah. was he claimed that he'd been the victim yeah. of an anthrax attack. Yes, okay? anthrax. And that That's his right. baby received it. Sure. Now, as a comedian, I first read this, and I was like, comedians lie all the fucking time. Yeah. After further introspection, I've changed my mind well, in listening to the bit. Yeah, because the bit's not even funny. <laughs> the problem is this. He See. claimed that his daughter was sent anthrax I know, which I know. was not true yeah okay there's a difference between creating a scenario or yeah. hyperbole sure. to get to a, a place yeah. where uh, you may call it pathos or whatever but where you're connecting with the audience and you're delivering comedy mm-hmm. when you're fictionalizing da- real life mm-hmm. events like racism Fic- fictionalizing and terrorist fic- threats fic- victimhood yeah right it's a problem yeah now i know a lot of comedians will disagree and they'll say comedians are allowed to do whatever they want to do my whole point is 
that's your truth. That's your whatever you need to do. And if you if you can go tell a joke saying you got thrax sent to your kid and <laughs> live with yourself, thrax, then that's your fucking truth. Now, in this article that I read, I believe it was in the New Yorker, they had said that Minaj said seventy percent of my comedy. Uh, or, or there was a thirty. Yeah, he said seventy percent of my co- uh, comedy is an emotional truth. Okay. That's how okay. he was rationalizing it, or sure. maybe it was thirty percent. The point is, he was he's saying the numbers. We get it. He's Indian. <laughs> he's he's finding Showing a way off. to rationalize these lies that he created. Now, again, I've seen a lot of comics mm-hmm. who I think reacted to this and didn't read the story, yeah. which is clearly he made up some really shitty shit. I watched the podcast on it. Okay, a whole thirty minutes on it. Right, but there's a difference between me saying I went out on a date and said this to a woman, yeah, as opposed I, I, I 100% to hundred percent. Um, somebody sent me anthrax because yeah. they're racist and you know tried. And to this kill is me. different than the Ren is easy thing because he told it on a podcast, well, which is like Ren, on the Mar- Mark Maron podcast. The point is, going back to what you're saying, Pete chose to forgive him. That's yeah. Pete's choice. Yeah, it's the audience's choice to forgive. Yeah, he's been on Legion of Skanks a bunch of times. He's like. Uh, Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, it's up to the individual on now what friends with they want to do. <laughs> it's just, my point is, it's an individual choice. Yeah, 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 but I want to sure. make sure we're clear on the Hassan Minaj thing. Okay, Yeah, we are. That, in my opinion, is fucking cheap. Yeah, and it's bullshit. pandering. Mm-hmm. And yeah. my, su- I suspect... Like one step above, what's her name? Ga- Hannah Gatsby. I, no comment. Okay. My, my, I suspect this. I suspect he was a young comedian. He was coming up. And somebody said, we need to create your persona. And he amplified it by creating these falsehoods and these, well, they're fucking lies. Sure. Okay. We're getting off track with let's, my preface, but go. you brought it up. Okay. So anyway, back to, uh, to Ran is easy and even more brazen 9-11 imposter uh, dressed in an FDI, FDNY uniform as he told an audience at the 10th anniversary in 2011, how he had taken part in the rescue missions as captain uh, of ladder 133. This isn't ran as easy. This is just some guy. Yeah. His name was Jordan Liflander, and he claimed to have attended 47 cool funerals. Fucking firefighter. Yeah, pretty good. Um, it's no bowler ax, but then again, uh, I, I just know. watched backdraft. Wow. Um, anyways, he Why? was, because it was on <laughs> and I had to fall asleep Why? and I wanted to see Jennifer Jason Lee in 1995. Jesus. Anyway, he was just exposed as a fraud. Then um, back to the 9-11 side, which is the thesis of this person's article. In the years after the attacks, the clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at George Washington University, it's not Jean Kim, I'm assuming it's Gene Kim. Apologies on the mispronunciation. <laughs> Well, I love Lucy Day. It was a couple days ago. Kim began noticing more and more of her New York patients claiming to have lost a loved one in 9-11. The attacks on the Twin Towers was an act of mass murder, unlike anything experienced in modern America. But Dr. Kim realized the 2,977 people who died simply didn't correspond with the number of patients who were reporting lost friends (laughs) and relatives. Those are them dead bodies. The, The rubble. My cynicism started to creep forth, yep. Dr. Kim wrote in, wa- in the Washington Post in 2015. Anyone with a report of a 9-11 death in their history was likely seeking some sort of secondary gain, at best in the form of greater sympathy 
in the face of a multitude of other tough psychological stressors in their lives, or at worst, to get controlled substances or even apply for special 9-11 benefits. Uh Her suspicions were confirmed when she checked out one patient's story and found it to have been false. She coined the term the 9-11 sign. Well, then they ask in the article, where were you on 9-11? I vividly remember where I was. You know, somebody called me and I was in my tiny bachelor apartment and I watched it on TV. And I'm sure you probably... I was, I was in 11th you know, grade and yeah. I woke up. My dad told me to put it on. It was already, what was it, 8 o'clock over here? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not, no, it was like 6, 6 a.m. Yeah. It was like a Tuesday morning. Yeah. Some shit. Yeah, I was hungover. And uh, yeah, just went to school. But you know just where you are. The video. And it's like you're going to remember like, for the oh, rest shit. of your life. Yeah, I saw the second one come down on CNN. Yeah. I have crazy. two events that are imprinted. One is the Challenger explosion, second grade. Oh, God. And then one is, is 9-11. I'll never forget where I was. Okay, well. Challenger happened like right after my birthday. <laughs> right around my birthday. When Same you were month. one. Yeah, I was like, uh, no, zero. You were zero. <laughs> I was zero years old. Okay. Not even. A, I was a couple days old. <laughs> well, like I was the like five days old, like the JFK assassination, or the death of Princess Di. But the Bears had just won, so that nothing can bring my dad down. Okay, the Bears. Major tragedies that play out in full public view often become seared into people's consciousness. They're known as flashbulb memories. Seared into their consciousness. It's totally true. It's They're seared. Doctor Elizabeth Loftus, the leading authority on false memory. And cognitive psychology in the U.S. explains. Um, a D- Dr. Loftus, a distinguished professor uh, in psychology science at the University of California, says most people who experience a momentous historical event over the age of eight can readily recall where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news. Yeah, but no, won't forget that baseball bat uh, to the dome after the pinata. Now I was nine years old. Now 76, Dr. Luffus remembers with crystal clarity how she learned of President Kennedy's death, uh, age 19, and have ju- uh, just ho- hopped off a plane in New York City on her way to the Harvard-Yale football game. Memories of learning about the Twin Tower attacks aren't quite as indelible, but she still has a distinct recollection of being told of the attack by a friend. Well, Dr. Loftus has testified. <laughs> Dr. Loftus. Dr. Loftus has testified about the fallibility of memory in dozens of high-profile criminal cases, from the '93 trial of officers accused of uh, assaulting Rodney King, yep. to Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault case last year. Okay. And having appeared as a defense witness for some of the most vilified criminals of our time, she believes we should be more empathetic and less judgmental. So this kind of goes back to Pete. He chose to be empathetic. Yeah. She cites the example of anchor Brian Williams falsely claiming he had been riding in a Chinook helicopter that came under RPG. That's right. Oh, that was all bullshit. I was there. I was there. (laughs) Well, of course, you know, Brian Williams lost his job, which is the best seat in the house at, uh, is the anchor of the NBC Nightly News. And Dr. Loftus thinks Mr. Williams's memory evolved over time, and he believes a similar thing has happened with 9-11 glory seekers. Even really, really, really smart, educated people have come to believe 
that they had experiences that they later had to admit just never happened. She says people's stories often get a little bit more lurid and dramatic with each telling. And pretty soon the account has evolved into something far from the truth. It may be that people are lying to get sympathy and empathy and the other rewards that come from being a victim of one of those experiences. And they end up believing these lies. We've got to leave room for scorn against the ones that get limited victims' compensation funds. We don't have too much compassion for them. Now, there are lies, and then there is self-delusion. Philippe de Brigard is a professor of uh, philosophy and a cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, and he works with the intersection of memory and imagination. He says determining whether a person is being intentionally deceitful or has come to believe their own lies is complex. Suppose that I tell you something I think is false and it turns out to be true. Am I lying to you, he asks? And if I tell you a fact that it is false, but I happen to believe it to be true, am I lying? He has studied the phenomenon of confabulation in patients who had damage in the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that influences complex tasks such as planning, social interaction, personality, and memory. In some cases, brain damage possibly brought on by alcohol abuse had caused patients to attach themselves to a narrative that was clearly wrong. He says there is a point in which the pathology was such that the lie was no longer thought of as a lie. It became the truth. If I could tell by some neural signature whether a particular thing that a person is experiencing as a memory is a lie or a run-of-the-mill false memory, I would be rich. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to separate those things. Now, I want you to think about this okay. before, when I say you, I mean our listeners as well, yeah. before and while we get into the story of the woman who wasn't there. And of course, what I grabbed from that article right there, mm-hmm. the only thing that really jumped out at me is drunks are liars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, 100%. <laughs> But it is interesting because they're saying intelligent people can be convinced that they were at an event they were at. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if I'm intelligent. I don't know if I'm not intelligent. Yeah. But I know. I know. I watched 9-11. Yeah. I dreamt it. From a TV. Dude. I was nowhere near it. Right. So think about all this. And now, are you ready to get in to the woman who wasn't there? Here's how the um, movie begins. Immediately, we're introduced to a woman named Tanya Head. Now, she looks to be about 40, speaks with an accent that's a little difficult to place. Uh, She's got got an extra chin. She's a a big lady. She's got an extra chin. She's wearing a t-shirt. Great. And she says, just before... Just one chin. Yeah, two and a half. Just before 8.30, I got a call, and it was Dave, and he said yeah, yeah. That, that he just wanted to go and get some coffee. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I wanted to meet him, and um, I said that I was just about to go into, the, into a meeting, and that I couldn't. I, I couldn't do it. And I said, I love you, and talk to you later. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time I ever spoke to him. Yeah. Well, we see 
Next, the first of many striking graphic illustrations of Tanya that will appear throughout the film. Like mutilated body? No, no, graphic illustrations. They're kind of like animation, but also oh. stills. Oh, they meant graphic in nature. They are. Oh. Um, and they're used, obviously, to tell this story visually. Okay. Now, they, they're very rich in color, a lot of saturation, skillfully detailed. Saturation. Uh, with heavy lines and shadowing and very, you know, blurred backgrounds. Sure. They kind of have a comic book feel to okay. that. Like a graphic novel, maybe. Got it. But um, they're also kind of like bordering on courtroom type sketches, you know, and <laughs> Tanya so like open. So I, I like loosely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're interpretive. Cool. Uh, but Tanya says it was amazing. And, you know, it was the kind of crazy love story where we could finish each other's sentences. Oh boy. We were so alike. Like, but some people say opposites attract. But for me, it was different. Yeah. It was like attracted to the muff. He and I were almost oh, he. the same person. Oh. Dave. His name's Dave. Oh, okay? yeah, Dave. That's right. Yeah, Dave's not a muff I don't know name. why. I don't know why. Because you're baked. I, I don't know why I was you're straight Because you're, you're probably still thinking about, what's his name? Calling you the call, Kyle C. Calling you a bigot. Damn, dude. Uh, Kyle. Anyway, or a homophobe, I should say. Sometimes, he, sometimes yeah. he was explosive, but it was, it was definitely a love story. That day, I didn't just lose Dave. Oh, no. I lost myself. <laughs> We well, always lose Dave. We see at this point okay. one of these illustrations I was speaking of, uh, of her and Dave getting married. Mm. And they're at a beach. Um, they stand at the edge of the ocean and they're surrounded by flowers. And then the next thing we see is an airplane getting ready to slam into the World Trade Center. And we see Tanya. <laughs> we see Tanya. Interesting. And she's in the building and the plane's coming right at her. Whoa. And she's huddled down on the ground with another person. And then get out of here. Yeah. Whoa. And then we see the title card, the woman who wasn't there. But how do they get the film from inside of the 9-11? Courtroom sketch artist, yeah. bro. Crazy dude. So oh, yeah. we're gonna open up on Southern Manhattan mm -hmm. on September eleventh, yeah, two thousand six, which is what, Dave? Wait, say it again. September eleventh, yeah. two thousand six. That's Five years after September 11, 2001. Correct. So it's the uh, the fifth year anniversary. Fifth year anniversary. Well, we see Tanya lean over a desk and she kind of goes, I'm going to give you a visual. She kind of leans down like this and you see the back of her arm and it's severely damaged. Oh. Okay. Well, she's gathered with a group of 9-11 survivors. <laughs> and keep in mind, she's talking directly into the camera. Yeah. Okay. Oh boy. And she says... It's the morning of September 11th, and we're all going to the official ceremony at the site. We hope to make it there by the first moment of silence at 846. It's one of the hardest experiences of my life to go down that ramp every anniversary, but I, I do it for Dave uh, because I knew he, he wants me to be here. But let me show you something. Well, she pulls out um, a little brown paper bag that's all crumpled up. And she pulls out a little yellow toy taxi car out of the bag. And she says, Dave and I met outside the World Trade Center when he stole my cab. So every year when I go to the site, I bring a New York City cab with me. I put it in the reflection pool so that he knows that I remember the day. Damn. And then we see footage from this memorial in 2006. And they're at the reflecting pool. 
and there's flowers in there. Now, keep in mind, it's not the one that's done now. Yeah. They, it was a mini reflection pool. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. before the, the memorial yeah, was, was like dedicated. The, it was like a movable yeah. one, the yeah. mini one. Well, sure. Tanya says, some of my coworkers had families, they had little kids, and they died. And I didn't. So why? Mm. Why? Why am I special? Why was I spared? Because you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> this is the title they fucked the story up why didn't they make it why was why did i make it was it god was it faith was it because we have something to do was it because we were sheltered by the elevator machinery it just makes you go crazy you go crazy asking yourself why 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 well we're going to meet a survivor by the name of Ilya. Zidano. And she says, people kept saying how blessed I was. And I didn't feel blessed at all. I felt like it was a curse. Survivor guilt made me feel that. Made me actually go from the question, why did I survive to why did I have to survive? Well, we also meet another survivor by the name of Jerry uh, Bogatz. And he said, Which season did he win? (laughs) He says, I don't know how to describe it. it. It's sort of a pain in my, my, my gut, you know? And I remember actually doubling over, realizing, oh my God, those three people were all on my side and I didn't get them out. Well, next we meet another survivor named Brendan Chellis. And he says, it's so hard to get past being alive when all... He's got this rolling voice, by the way. I love his voice. When all these people, he sounds like an announcer at a sports game. He says, all these people aren't. And I've had people say to me, you know, you're so lucky. You've got, you know, you got out of there. You must feel great. You don't. I woke up thinking about 9-11, went to bed thinking about it, (laughs) dreamed about it, just couldn't get it out. I mean, I just kept replaying that day over and over and over again. Before I met Tanya, I talked to, you know, a couple of professional people, and it really wasn't helping me. I searched online, and I joined the support group that they had for survivors. Well, Tanya says, we started as an online peer support group where you could go into a Yahoo group and connect to other survivors 24 hours a day. So one day... You were having a bad day and you would post it online. And within 30 minutes, you get 40 replies of people saying, I know how you feel. You know, it's okay to have those feelings. I'm here for you. Just call me anything you need. Well, time to meet uh, Lori Mogul, who was a survivor. And she says many people were having economic problems, health problems, uh, just a lot of uh, that sense of peril, parallel uh, reality. That people were heavily living through. Uh-huh. And I think life. Yeah. Like very just like paying bills and paying getting going to the grocery stores. Life was tough. I don't think it's the same thing, okay. buddy. We have to I, walk through rubble. I I I don't think um they're comparable at all now that you say it. Okay. Okay. All if right. you, I mean Who are we talking about again? <laughs> We're talking about the experience of surviving Uh, 9-11. It's not like you uh, escaped that day and everything's fine. Okay. You ever hear of a little stuff called PTSD? It's like 320 million people survived it. 
Oh, okay. got 3, I see where we're going. No, I'm just going. Go so on, stupid. She says, you know, um, it was, you know, just being able to talk to other people sure. helped lift us up. Yeah. Well, Brendan says, I had many conversations. Emotion. With Tanya. Just one on one. Typical slut emotion. <laughs> conversations where she gave me a lot of support like nobody else did. Well, Ilya says, I admired her from the beginning, how strong she seemed. Mm. And at the same time, once I started to get to know her, then I realized this whole strength thing that she shows is really a facade. She really is in a lot of pain. Yeah. She was, she seemed to be really in pain and really distraught. And I said, I said, well, of course, how could she not be? Well, Brendan says, when I first heard of Tanya's story, she did not talk about it much. And then one day she just wrote it out in its entirety and it blew me away. I mean, you know, we had all been through horrible things. So how many years after? uh, It was about 2003 to 2004 by my math. For her to write it out? Uh Uh-huh. Pretty good time to come up with. But Tanya's. Come up with the story. Tanya's was just head and shoulders above anything else that we had gone through. Mm-hmm. Well, we see a Yahoo post. Yeah. Okay. From uh, a message group that they were in. And uh, it's highlighted. The plane hit, killing everyone but a few of us. I had to crawl over debris, body parts of dead people. Well, now at this point, you know me. I'm like, I want to read that whole fucking letter. Okay. That whole post. And I looked. The interesting thing is there's not much to find on her in general, but I found, uh, I wasn't able to find the Yahoo post, Mm -hmm. but I carefully screened, paused it and it's at an angle. And I was a man, I managed to transcribe her word for word documentation. Wow. Now keep in mind, there are about eight misspellings throughout this. Okay. That's something that I noticed that was kind of weird. Right. Uh, I'm not going to point them out in what I uh, wrote down, but just know that there were there were some syntax errors. Well, yeah, um, fucking... So she says this. Oh, you expect it to be perfect? Well, I expect you to know the difference between oh, I don't know, stocking and sewing, or I, that's a bad example. Okay. I'll find one when it comes up to me. Okay. Now you're gonna okay. make me do it. Here's <laughs> yeah, what it yeah, reads. I don't know. I mean, you brought it up like it meant something, John. Well, yeah, you already called it. She's fucking full of shit. Well, I mean, the title called it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm just. I'm not. I'm not trying to be an asshole. I just think she's full of shit already. I mean, <laughs> we already know she's full of shit. She's full of shit. Okay, but we want to know how full of shit, John. Okay, I work for FTC. I'm not going to do her accent in the, in this part. Fuck that bitch. On Wait, the FTC. Ni- on, no, oh, that's not. F- no, it's not what you're thinking. Uh on the 96th floor but had gone down to the Sky Lobby on the 78th floor to wait for the express elevator. It was packed with people. Hundreds when the plane hit killing everyone, but a few of us who were on the northern side. The initial explosion knocked everyone off their feet. It caused the building to violently sway, lunging me towards the wall. The worst was the fireball that ripped through shortly after. It lasted a few seconds, but the heat was unbearable. When it stopped, I was in so much pain, I instinctively rolled over. A man came over and put the flames in my back and arm. There's a syntax error. 
I was in so much pain from cuts, burns, and several fractures. I looked around, and it was like a horror movie. People were sprawled out, mounted on top of each other, over and under debris. Blood was everywhere. The smell of burnt skin was gagging, limbs and people's insides. So much more, I can't find words to describe. I wanted to get up, but I couldn't do it. It was like my brain was saying, get out of my body, was totally spent and not responding. Again, run on sentences, no commas. I mean... I know, but I also cleaned some of this up, so it would be easier for me to read. A man wearing a red scarf. She is full of shit. I mean, I don't know what I'm defending here. A man wearing a red scarf said he had found the stairs and asked everyone who could walk to follow him. He said they were going to help. Well, Tanya says, and this is back to the camera, I started seeing these flames and I was like, something's happening in the other tower. And I... Dude, I wonder how many people like got away with murders because of 9-11 too. You, are you talking about... It's like uh, they have are you dead, talking about have dead body Bush, Bush and Cheney? Sure, <laughs> sure. I mean, they've got millions of their... But I'm saying like, you just happen to have a body that you had to just make disappear... That day, chalk it, yeah, and just chalk it up to like nine eleven got him. I don't know. Um, I'm sure there were something happened. I'm sure somebody <laughs> dozens of reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure somebody was like whack somebody, Jimmy the Saint, and yeah. he was like, oh yeah. By the way, he was nine eleven that day. Yes. So don't bother, you know, trying to go to the Gemini Lounge yeah. in Flatbush. He was at nine eleven. He's yeah. dead. Yeah, yeah. So, because you you know there it it is true. There are many bodies that were never recovered. Oh, I'm sure it's not just that. It's just like, yeah. Well, I always thought with forensic scientists they were going to be able to find everybody. No. You know, but there were there are people that were never. It was found. just like whoever, like you, as long as you have a missing persons call on that day at nine eleven, then you're go. good to go, yeah. dude. Dude, it's funny you say that because I was watching this Unsolved Mysteries a while back. And there was somebody that went missing on nine uh, eleven. No. Yes, ain't nobody looking for you. Yeah, and they were like, "Well, we can't find her, so we're just assuming she was in the tower that day, <sighs> and or like near debris." Well, no, because she lived down there. Yeah. And then uh, they were like, "Oh, the boyfriend might have done it because they got in a fight the night before, and she would never disappear. She'd always check in with me." So the boyfriend was a suspect for a while. Wow. And this went on for years. And then finally, somebody found her body. Like, I want to say like five or six years later. And they were like, yeah, she wasn't in the towers that day. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) uh, Tanya says, uh, I started seeing these flames. And I was like, something's happening in the other tower. And I started thinking about Dave right away. I, I, the first thing I did was starting to count the floors down from the top. He was on the hundredth floor. And I was like, oh, my God, his floor is one of the floors that has been hit. A woman started screaming, there's another plane coming. There's another plane coming. Well, the animation graphics, whatever you want to call them, they show Tanya and she like turns around and the plane's just bearing down right on her to the windows. And then we see the plane crash into the building that she's in. She says, the first thing I felt was, was the air was sucked out of my lungs, like a change in pressure, and I was flying. I was flying through the air from the impact. I was just flying. I remember feeling very well the pain of hitting the wall, the marble wall, and then I then remember the warmth from the explosion, and then I passed out. 
And of course, they intersplice this with the graphic images they've created as well as the actual plane. And it's pretty powerful when you're first watching sure. this. By the way, you're totally right. If they had not titled this what they titled this, it would be so much more gripping that you, uh, yeah, get, I mean, this, what the fuck? That you uh, get this reveal towards the end. It's all bullshit. So get it. Tanya says, my, Why do they do that? My back was on fire and my arm. Remember she had the arm issue? Yeah. With the survivor's meeting? And I was smelling my own skin burning. I remember Wells Crowther, the man with the red bandana. I guess now you just wonder how close was she? To who? To the event for you're gonna find out. I know. I mean you, you wanna take an over under? Let's set the over under like distance from Yeah. The- <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, hold on. Over under twenty five feet. Oh, what? Whoa. From, what? from the tower. 25 feet. For, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, now it just puts it in a different perspective. Yeah. I mean, if she was like at the actual ground zero. Yeah, but I'm saying. If she was at ground ground zero, then I mean, there's not. You want the over or you want the under? I'll take the, I'll take the over. Okay. That she was 25 feet away from the building. From the building, I guess. Okay. Yeah, That's I mean, fair. Okay. I guess. I was thinking miles. Okay. Well, I already I'm said glad, it, so I can't yeah, change yeah, it. I'm glad I didn't okay. say anything. So <laughs> she references uh, Wells. Uh, I said Crowder. It's Crowther. That was the other thing. She mispronounced Wells uh, Crowther's name. Okay. Uh, you know who Wells is, right? Talking like We're Wells gonna, Fargo? No, no. <laughs> Wells Crowther. Uh, it sounds familiar. We'll get to it because okay. it's an important part of the story. She says he had some type of cloth, and I felt him use that to put the flames out, and he hugged me, and he said, just stay awake. Stay awake. Help is coming. Now, we see another still here of a firefighter carrying her bloodied body down the street. You see a what? Oh, st- okay. Just okay. a still picture. Still picture. Okay. Now, it's not a photograph. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, yeah. it's like a painting. Right. I was in the hospital until Thanksgiving, November 2001, and my back was really burned and my arm was burned and I couldn't walk. So I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't even pull myself on the wheelchair because I only had one good arm. <laughs> she laughs when she says this, which I thought was weird. So, yeah. So, you know, between the wheelchair, the trauma, the loss, I didn't know where to start. It was too hard. It was like looking at a mountain that was 20,000 feet tall. Well, next we see another memorial where Tanya is present and people are taking pictures of her. Well, Brendan says, my story was so insignificant to what she went through that my first reaction writing to her was, that's horrible. And I don't belong in this group. And a lot of people wrote that she was very supportive, saying, no, you do. You know what we all went through was equally important. Well, Elias says she was fabulous. Here's this person who went through so much that who in the world could possibly survive this, yet she's a survivor. Here she is. She's a survivor. Tanya says, I think you could find that by talking to other people and helping others getting involved, it helps carry your own burden. And I think that's how you mask it. You kind of hide your pain by getting involved in helping others. What kind of nationality is this person? I don't want to totally ruin it, but... She looks very white. 
but there's a little hint of maybe Portuguese uh, or Spanish. Tell me she's busking Hilaria and like faking her accent now too. I I don't know. Oh no! Because, and that's I can't gross. tell you why right now that I don't know. But you'll understand later when I tell you I don't know. Oh boy! So yeah, back to Jerry. Yeah. Um, and again, Jerry, you know, he's, uh, I'm guessing he was probably 35, 40 at the time. And he says, I became aware of Tanya and I was very close as to how she got through all that. Um, it was a story that pulled you in, obviously. But I did notice that her arm, well, looked like it had been, I don't know. It almost looked like skin grafts on her right arm. And I remember thinking that, it didn't look like it had been burned. Okay. Wow. All right. You know, and he's right. You know what it looks like? Yeah. You ever been to the OC fair? No. You ever get a turkey leg? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. That's it, exactly what it looks like. It looks like turkey leg arm. I saw a dude at Skank Fest <laughs> with like burnt chest marks. Mm -hmm. And uh, he fucking, he had some like burns, burning scars. You could tell right away. But see, skin, what does skin grafting look like? Well, skin grafting, you could see it's somewhat raised. Okay. You know what I mean? And it's skin put over yeah, yeah, yeah. dead skin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, nah, nah. And a lot of times, yeah, nah, it's not... linear in its texture yeah, that bleh, I've bleh. seen. But, you know, I can, I can when you get a little peak of the turkey leg, yeah. you're like, yeah, th that doesn't look like a burn. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're like. It's not a burn. It's like a, it's, yeah, it's like a, it's like your skin's melting together. It doesn't look like that. It's that's a totally not, that's not no not not that's not what skin grafting looks like. That's what burns look like. Like you could a distinct scar. Right, burn right, scar. right, right. You like I just watched Backdraft the other day. Yeah, it didn't look like that. No, no, no. Okay, so Jerry says I had felt mad at myself for even thinking that there was something amiss, but I often wonder why I was even asking the question. I first encountered Tanya Head on the internet group. We began having an email conversation, and she shared her story with me. And I shared my story with her, which is kind of normal for survivors to do. I was struck by how dramatic her story was. It was pervasive. It was this idea of this person who had gone through so much, and people try to protect her a lot, and I think probably had a protective feeling right from the start. Well... We see Tanya and a few other survivors with Jerry at what looks like, you know, when you do a 10K race and you got the bibs on. Yeah. It's one of those. Okay. So they're, oh, all, yeah. they're all in a group together sure. and they ran for some sort of charity. Presumably, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, something sure. connected to 9-11, I would imagine. <laughs> right, right, right. And she says, uh, I have met... A benefit run. I have met Jerry uh, and Jerry was also meeting with survivors. He had started having dinner with people in his office who were interested in meeting the dis and discussing their September 11th experience. Wait, Jerry was? Yeah, Jerry was a survivor. Oh, wait okay. a minute. Wait, I don't understand. Wait, were they together before 9-11? No. Oh, after. They met at a survivor's group. Ah, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Well, Jerry says, I had the idea for the survivor's network because, again, I had this feeling of having a hole I needed to fill about 9-11 in me. Yeah, I need, somebody, I need to talk to people about it. I suggested that she come to a meeting of the Survivors Network as a way... Attention on me is what I need. <laughs> bringing, bringing these two groups together. And that was the first time I had met her in person. Mm -hmm. We ended up going for coffee that same day. 
and we started to unite forces and we formed the World Trade Center Survivors Network. I was driven. I've been working nonstop. I've been working at my office for, for my work. I've been working for the Survivors Network, for the, the Dave's Foundation. Fuck yeah, baby. For the Widows Fucking Group. Dave's Foundation. I mean, I had just been working 24 hours a day nonstop for different things. Yeah. And that's how my anger was channeled because of this obsession that I had to, to really not be like the hijackers. Wow. I know. That struck me too. Wow. I was like, wait, wait, wait. What are you doing you did this, this for? for? And she says, un uniting America? But her goal was yeah. to not be like the, the hijackers. Now, I don't know but if she that's... She was a hijacker. <laughs> she was a mental... She was a, a mental, mental jacker. A mental... A mental... A, a, a extremist. Extremist. But a mental extremist. When I heard that, <laughs> it really struck with me. Something didn't sound right. And I was like, is this a lost in translation thing? Or is it like a Freudian slip? Because it, it just doesn't... That's not how I would end the sentence. You should probably lived it for so long. It was so engulfed and entrenched in survivorhood that she's like, man, I mean, I was 25 feet from fucking from ground zero, dude. Or over. Whatever. Or less. Or less. <laughs> I was right there. Like, who cares? Yeah, I know. I know. I'm just, I'm I want, know, you, I want it, our listeners to think about like, this. She, like, in her mind, she's, she was close enough. And when you said 25 feet, I was like... We're just fucking close enough, actually. I got. I mean, we're gonna get into that yeah. later, by the way. <laughs> I mean, because I'm gonna there, be honest there, with you, there are some things fucking close enough. Well, and here's my I question: mean, She still is a survivor, just not to the extent. Well, and I want to bring this up right now, yeah. as long as we're talking about it, because yeah. I was really thinking about this too. Sure. If you were, let's say, it's not like out, like like maybe you were the last ten people to end up at Auschwitz, and then they freed them. But but you still fuck, and then the people they Dude, see you. You're a survivor. Then. Yeah, yeah, yes. you are. But like, but the other survivors are, are gonna know. They're gonna be like, yeah, like I got here on the last day. Like literally, it doesn't matter. You survived. <laughs> How? I mean, my point like, is, he this. came with the full belly. I'm kind of <laughs> curious, and I want our listeners to ask the same question: What does it mean to be considered a survivor of 9/11? Now, obviously, you have two camps. Stolen valor, obviously, is never good. So that's all I'll correct. say. To that. Correct. So here's the thing. You have different camps here. Yeah. You have the people that are directly affected, meaning people that died. Sure. They're obviously not survivors. <laughs> well, I mean, not I'd say their families right. are directly affected. Correct. Also. So then your their families would be considered survivors of 9-11. Now. Man. No? Not if they weren't there. I think it's the term survivor needs to be In the building? Defined. Damn, that's a good question. It is a question uh, because it really. It's like I, a wide area. Or here's the other thing. What if, also, I mean, what if, what if, okay, obviously, if let's just break it down. Yeah. If you're in the building, yeah, you're and you get out, dude, that's like 25 okay. feet from the building when okay. you said that. Let's start with the building. Yeah. If you were in the building that day and you got out, you're a survivor. Yeah. Okay. I don't care if you were on the fifth floor. Yeah. The hundredth floor. Yeah. Anywhere in between yeah, one of those buildings. Even if you were in the building anytime during that day. Yeah. You're a survivor. 24 hours. <laughs> 24 hours I'll fucking give you, dude. Okay. All right. Now here's the thing. If you were at ground zero when the towers fell, you're a survivor because yeah. you had to run, you know, you had to get away. Uh, now here's the question. Let's say you live across the street and you witness this. Across the street from the trade centers? Yeah. Because many people watched yeah. it. Yeah. Are you a survivor? I mean, I don't think you can call yourself a survivor. It depends on how close, like if you're directly <laughs> across the street. Yeah. If you're directly across the street from yeah. a building falling down. Yeah. Two buildings falling down. Yeah. You survive. 
Really? Even if you're, even if you're locked away in your house. Okay. What your if, house can come down at any point. What if you're too... You can't leave and you can't... You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're okay. in the worst situation. Because... Because staying indoors yeah, is just as da- right. dangerous and or is like is equally as dangerous or as risky as staying indoors. Right. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. Something you just building can seven building seven could fall on you. Right. OK, so let's let's keep with this train of thought. What yeah, if interesting? What if very interesting you get out of the subway mm-hmm. and you see the building coming down? You're obviously a survivor. Dude, if you have to run away from debris okay, back to what I said, you're now. surviving. Yeah, yeah. What if you're two stops away on the train and they halt the train and you're underneath the ground for four hours? Did you survive? If you, I'll give this to you. <laughs> if at any point between the first, if at any point of the first <coughs> tower being hit uh-huh. and the second tower going down, so mm-hmm. all so the the whole span yeah. of 9-11... If you're running away from 9/11, yes. you're a survivor. Okay. Fair if you're enough. running towards it, you're you're I guess a survivor. Yeah. Cuz you didn't know. Also, yeah. You didn't know that you had to run I'm away. I'm saying from. I'm, I'm just saying like Well, you're saying you're, running towards it. What if I start at 78th Street running towards the building and, and I then, only get to 54th Street when it falls down? That's I'm not a survivor. Yeah, I'm no, 65 blocks away. Nah, I mean, not. You know. have to be in the vicinity is my point. Sure. What do we give in the vicinity? I would say four blocks Four block Ooh. radius. Four blocks. Maybe. That's rough. People yeah. are going to be mad with that response. Uh, I get, I we're going to get more hate mail give, than the, for the F word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what do you say? So I basically, I just want, I want to say, really, I mean, if you witnessed it coming yeah. down and being hit, yeah. if you could see it from where you are. <sighs> see, that's a really good point. Because if you like, were there and you saw bodies jumping, like maybe, I would like, say you survive. I guess Jersey could see you too, couldn't they? No, of course. But what I'm saying is I, I do know people <laughs> yeah. that have family members that were there yeah. that saw bodies hit the ground. Yeah, now, man. you've got to consider them a survivor to a certain few, degree. A few blocks. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're a survivor. Dude. Yeah. It's crazy shit. Okay. Wouldn't wish that on anybody. Okay. All right. Because we obviously, we don't want to rake degrees of survivorship, but we're just yes, trying we to de- <laughs> define it. Because this, you know, you talk about these people that were on whatever it was, the 78th Let me tell you something. 25 feet, definitely survivor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're like, if you're worried about something falling on you, you're 100% of survivor. Yeah, yeah. But you think, (laughs) but then you look at these people that were on the 78th floor where the plane hit or whatever floor it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was it the 90s? And then they went to the Sky Lobby and there were like 20 people there. And then some of them escaped and some didn't. I mean, that was like the epicenter. You know, crazy, of just man. insanity. Uh, and then, of course, you know, all the people that didn't survive. Such precision. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to move on. Yeah. And um, we're going to meet Marianne Fontana. She is the founder of the September 11th Families Association. And she says, I think Tanya's presence made the docent program that we had envisioned possible. Mm-hmm. Do you know what a docent is? No. Dude, you know how it's New Word Wednesday? Okay. I was like, I got to know what a docent is. Yeah. Well, a docent is like a volunteer. Oh. Never heard that word in my life. So they're the responsible people for that are responsible for leading the tours, you know, around the joint. Sure. So Docent. Yeah, docent. Mm. She says her story kind of fit into that kind of all-encompassing, a survivor and a hero and, you know, a widow. And everything that kind of 9-11 came to represent that day. Mm. So her story was incredible. 
Moody well, hell, huh? we the next thing we see, Tanya nobody to check her ass. Tanya's leading a tour by the memorial and shaking hands with Rudy Giuliani. Wow, Rudy Jules, baby. Yeah. So next we Rudy see who? we see a newspaper article yeah. about her that's titled "An Amazing Woman and Her Smile" by Michael Daly. Mm-hmm. Now this is interesting. I googled this. Michael Daly. Yeah. I googled this article title. Nothing came up. Well, they're probably gonna remove it now. Well, that's my question. Would they? Uh, Wouldn't print know. need to stay where it's at as a record? Oh, they change it all the time. They, they do. They change titles of headlines all the time. Oh, but see, I I literally you look, go back and it's completely different. The the the, the, the t- this is technically the same place the article was, mm-hmm. and the the URL might be the same, but the title is yeah. different now too. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I understand the concept of revising articles. Sure. And the first thing I said when I couldn't find it is, I was like, I bet they deleted it uh, to wipe this person's name off the face of the earth because they never want her name mentioned again. Hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Go to like Wayback Machine and stuff like that. Dude, I'm telling you, she's a tough Google. I bet. Well, I did the work. 9-11 is already tough (laughs) to find. I did the work. Sure. I was able to get about half of this newspaper article and because I just still screened it and transcribed it. And it says the momentum of her memories sometimes causes Tanya head to tell a tour group about the horribly burned man who handed her his wedding ring. Jesus Christ. As she escaped the South tower. Oh no. So that's why uh, he told her story. That person's story. Fuck. On occasion, she also tells the visitors that her own husband perished in the North Tower. Wow. She always begins by introducing herself to those who come to the first-person account of 9-11 from one of the 122 volunteer guides at the new Tribute World Trade Center Visitor Center. My name is Tanya, and I'm going to be your tour guide today, she said. And I was there in the towers. I am a survivor. I'm going to tell you about that. She led the group of a dozen around the perimeter of what is no longer there. An observant visitor would have noticed that Head's right hand was scarred from the injury suffered that morning five years ago. Those of us who were there always talk about how blue the sky was. She had been there at 8.30 a.m., in a meeting on the 96th floor of the South Tower. We heard very loud sounds coming from outside the meeting room. A plane had struck the North Tower, which was her, by her account, 113 feet away. The fire was so intense. Yeah, it overhit, baby. The fire, that, that's the space between the towers. Oh, that, that, how, how far that, she was. That just is, again, to give you a sense of how big... The site is. The towers are 113 feet apart. Doesn't seem like that big. I know. The fire was so intense that the windows of her tower were too hot to touch. She saw people begin to jump from the North Tower. And it wasn't just one. It wasn't just two. She said. She went to the 78th floor where several hundred people waited in the sky lobby for the express elevators. This woman started saying, there's another plane coming. There's another plane coming. Head recalled, we didn't believe her at first. The tip of the wing tore through the crowded sky lobby. This is where she's at. 
the first thing you feel is a tremendous increase in pressure and the air being sucked out of your lungs and then you're flying through the air. So she's repeating what she said there. Mm -hmm. She was knocked unconscious and awoke in searing pain. A young man was padding out her burned clothes. His name was Wells Crowther and he Mm -hmm. wore a red bandana. Well, the next thing we see, Tanya leading another tour and she's chilling with Governor Pataki. Okay? So you could see that she's really becoming somewhat of a I don't want to say celebrity, but yeah. a recognized person sure. with it's her nine, story. It's a 9-11 bitch. <laughs> it's 9-11 slide. It's 9-11 slide. Oh, you can't call her the 9-11 slide. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can do whatever. When, when, when did we find out she was full of shit? When they told us the title of the movie. <laughs> it's the 2012 they found out? <laughs> no, found no, out no. 2010? I can't, I can't okay, tell okay, you. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to get there. Um, next, we meet Alice Greenwald. National September 11th Memorial Museum. Uh, that's where she's at. And she says, I Green would call words. her just an energetic booster for the needs of the survivor community. She sure. genuinely wanted recognition yeah. for the survivor network. She generally, she generally wanted recognition for the survivor network. Yeah. The group she's supporting. Yeah. And the community. Oh, oh, like for them. She yeah. wanted recognition for them. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And she wanted them recognized that yeah, 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 yeah. that they had gone through, and uh, you know, and to provide a venue for them to feel like this is theirs, Got you it. know, their place of worship or you know whatever you want to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jerry says we didn't have a safe space. A, yeah, which is what that reviewer needs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> like we say, we don't care. But you can't and bring it's it up. turning into the biggest <laughs> runner of all time. <laughs> okay. Fuck you, Kyle. <laughs> I'm uh, fucking, I'm going to come to your house, dude. Oh, come, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. It's, it's a just, joke. I don't even know. Where oh, you no, live. but hey, what if they don't take it as a joke? You know okay? what? It's a sensitive generation. I'm sorry, oh, Kyle. Thank you. Apologize to Kyle. I'm not coming to your house. Okay, thank you. Where uh, do you live? Leave we also comments. meet a woman by Janice. Salento. Janice is great. She reminds me of Karen from uh, Goodfellas. She said, it was amazing that she survived. So you were just thankful. I've been saying Sharon this whole time. Sharon! You're a moron. (laughs) Sharon Stone was in uh, Casino. casino, It's Karen. Karen. Yeah. Hey, I used to date date a Karen. Yeah. And my friend comic would do that. She also? No. I don't have herpes. <laughs> and my God. friend comic would do that to her, and she had no idea what he was saying. Karen! Karen! Uh, that's all the money we had. <laughs> he says it's so and fucking gay. I, and I still had my Pittsburgh connection. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So okay. Um, so, you know, Janice says we were just all amazed that she'd survived, yeah. and we're thankful. Well, we meet another 9-11 survivor named Richard Zimbler. And he says she had, she had a tremendous sense of I'm humor. I'm a survivor too. And laughed a lot and always wanted to plan Ooh. another event and do important things. And one couldn't help but be drawn into that. Uh, we see her with Giuliani and he's like, Tanya, you did a great job. <laughs> you and, survived so nicely. Yeah. And Tanya's like, thank you. Well, Janice says, after we finish the tour, we're getting ready to leave. And a group of reporters came towards Tanya they wanted to get an interview. And Tanya started having a lot of anxiety. Like she was like out of control. Yeah. And actually it led to a full-blown panic attack. Nice. On camera? 
it's kind of off to the side. They oh, move yeah. the camera. She's good at this. Yeah. Well, they're obviously at ground zero. Letting natural emotion take over false pretenses. They're at ground zero, and you see security, bodyguard, you know, deflecting reporters because they have their own group that's sure. protecting these survivors. Oh, yeah. But Janice says she's totally breaking down. She's crying, okay. shaking. And I, had to, pause. and I had to tell the reporters to leave her alone. And I had to get out of there. Well, Tanya says, one day I come home from work. And what I found was rose petals beating from the uh, door. Dave's getting a little frisky. Eh? To our dining room. Uh-huh. And I followed the rose petals and I found Dave. Standing there <laughs> naked with a coconut bra. Oh, God. And a grass skirt. Oh, okay. Dancing to Hawaiian songs. And I was like, oh, my God. And oh my god, it's you, Dave. And you're <laughs> oh in a my, coconut. Oh my god, you're a crest dresser, Dave. <laughs> very weird. <laughs> Why are you in my home again? <laughs> he even cooked this really disgusting Hawaiian food. Uh, Recipes that he found on the internet and on the dining room table were two tickets to Hawaii. By the way, that's where anybody only finds recipes now is on the internet. Yeah, of course. So she's Back fucking, then, it's a little different. It's a little different, I know. Okay. And then there were two tickets to Hawaii leaving the next day. On, on the table. Wow. Mm-hmm. They were romantic. Mouskies? Um, I believe it was. Maui. Honolulu. We'll skis, get to man. No. Mouskies? Okay. <laughs> it was Maui. So Janice says he planned this whole amazing trip because she was busy working and he wanted to take her away and had her measurements made or taken and then uh, got a dress. Built, I don't know, tailored, I guess. And her parents came from California to witness the ceremony. Now, it wasn't a legal ceremony. It was just like a ceremony of a wedding. And Tanya says, I walked outside, and there were these four huge Hawaiian warriors with torches waiting for me outside. And then I like, what's going on? And they're like, no, we're escorting you down to the garden aisle. And I go, okay. So I followed them, and we all went um, to the beach, and there was Dave standing in the middle circle. So they're going to spit roast the cow and a pig? It's <laughs> <laughs> like Joe versus the volcano. Yeah. She doesn't yeah, I've know. I've seen Joe versus the volcano. Yeah, of course dude. you have. One of my favorite movies. She doesn't know that she's about to be sacrificed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave's standing in a circle of orchids, and the next morning, we started calling all of our friends and families, telling them, we had gotten Maui'd. Not married. Maui'd. We got Maui'd. Yeah, yeah. They got, that's, that means they two watched while the other two, <laughs> you know? Okay, okay. Got Maui'd the fucking... Well, right, Brendan says, whenever she talked with Dave... <laughs> I want to know this guy's story, dude. He's just the coolest. He just has the coolest voice. Does he, does he tell his story ever? Yeah. Oh, he does? Okay. She never showed any pictures of anything. We never met Dave's family. So the thought crossed my mind, what if she's one of these people who just never tells the truth and she just made everything up? Oh, boy. You know, the thought crossed my mind, but I, I didn't think it was possible. <laughs> so what I did was I was about to go to bed that night and I figured... I hired a private investigator to follow her. I'm <laughs> joking. You know what? Let me just look online. Oh, no. The sluts. Do a little research yeah. on part of her story. Yeah. Make sure she, there was a connection and see uh, the story's true. You glasses know. or no glasses on the Gla- side? Uh, no glasses. And okay. then I'll go to bed. 
Well, we see him searching. I do not sleep for four days. We see him searching online, and tons of articles come up about Dave. Um, now, the, the documentary very, is very careful here to redact his last name. So okay. he's not, his name's never uh, doxed. Well, he, ex- he existed. He was where she said he was, and, you know, he died on that day. There were a lot of newspaper articles, message boards. He's a very popular guy. But there was one thing that wasn't there. Any mention of Tanya anywhere. No mention of a fiancé. No mention of the trip to Hawaii that she talked about the month before. I mean, just no mention of anything she said. Well, I'm so confused about Dave. Mm-hmm. Dave is... I thought Dave. I thought she meets Dave at a Survivor's thing. No. Dave is her husband that died in the On North 9/11. Tower. Yeah. There's no other Daves. No. Okay. She's so, working in the South Tower. Yeah, 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 yeah. He dies in the North okay, so Tower. I was correct. Because I, I thought that they met at like a, at like a Survivor thing. No. She's at hanging out run with Brendan. Something. So the run must have been before. That's Jerry. Jerry okay, was Jerry. at the run. Okay, who's Jerry? Now? Jerry is the one that co-founded the group with her. Jerry oh, had a group. She had a group. Okay, they merged okay. groups. Got it, got it, got it, got okay. it. So, Jerry and Dave, dude, always mixes me up. Yeah, they're so similar. Um, let's go to Barcelona, Spain. Barcelona. It's time to meet Marta Forn. She is a reporter for La, La Vanguardia. And uh, she says Tanya had belonged to a good family, uh, Catalonian, conservative. She's very well known f- uh, by a lot of people. She's known to move in very high social circles. She would go to tennis clubs where the best society in Barcelona goes. So a lot of people knew who she was. Money laundering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we also meet her childhood friend, Sonia Humet. And she says Tanya was cheerful, uh, very jovial, pleasant. Um, when we were nine or 10 years old, we became very good friends. She was very generous to her friends. She'd always tell me about her boyfriends. She's going to marry this one. That one, she'd say, oh, I have this boyfriend and we have this, he's so handsome. And it was kind of funny for me. I'd say, yeah, sure, of course, yeah. And she was spoiled. She had a purebred Arabian horse. Oh, that was a dog. That's what I thought. She would ride horseback very well. She would ride at the polo grounds. Here's the thing. You got an Arabian horse. What? Attention whore. (laughs) Instagram model. Be careful. Attention (laughs) slut. We Instagram <laughs> modeled before it was cool. We would go on trips together. Well, while she's she pretty, Tanya. Yeah, I told you she's got a double chin. Oh, she's fat and disgusting. <laughs> Fuck. Isn't, great. How's she riding horses? Great, great. So we've gone to sluts to uh, the F word. So wait, so what's the new one you just added to the fucking <laughs> cat? D- double cows? chin. Yeah, double chin tarp. Okay. Giant tarp. Um. No. Look. 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 Um, so she grew up rich. She didn't like, yeah, yeah. She grew up rich and fat. Yeah. <laughs> so rich and fat. And finally she could no longer ride a horse. <laughs> until, they, until they say, okay, now lady, you cannot ride the horse here. It's a hurt his back. <laughs> I guess 250 pound men play polo, right? Oh yeah, yeah, so, for sure. So she, you'd be pretty fat. Horses, as a woman. horses can handle. Okay, handle they, have you ever heard of a saddlebag? That's why you need a fuck. <laughs> yeah. okay. That's why you need a giant Arabian horse. Yes, 
Okay, so yeah, anyway, we see um, a montage of actual photos from Tanya growing up in Barcelona, Barcelona. with Sonia, Sonia as a young yeah. girl. Yeah. Well, Sonia says one trait we all noticed above all was that she was in love with Americans. She was in Hell love yeah. with yeah American people in the United States. Go USA. It was a world that really so appealed faggy. appealed to her. Go USA. <laughs> she idolized them. Well, we also meet Allison Crowther. This wow. Allison Crowther, huh? Who, who's Allison Crowther? <laughs> well, she's the mother of Wells Crowther. Yeah. Okay. And this is really one of the touching moments in the film. Sure. We see a dog with a red bandana. Oh, oh God. Is it, does it like signify that other dude's red bandana? Yes. Wow. Yes. And she's like, the You're, dude that died? Yes. Wow. And she she does that thing where she's like, okay, bang, die. And then the dog falls down. Yeah. And she's like, oh, he's not totally Hack. dead. But <laughs> <laughs> he's not totally dead. So but, he's, but he's wearing a red bandana since yeah. we've had him. Yeah. And when we lost Wells, we put it on him. And uh, he's at worn it ever since. Um, so she said, I first heard the name Tanya Head when a friend of ours who we'd gotten to know, a very lovely young woman who volunteers down at Ground Zero, called me and said, Allison, I think I've met someone. I've heard someone who Wells also saved. This woman at Ground Zero was leading the tour, and she was sharing her story about the man in the red bandana. Uh-huh. And the man in the red bandana saved her. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. Well, we'd love to meet story. her. Uh-huh. Well, at this point, we see a picture of Wells with his mother, and the caption reads, the man in the red bandana died at 9-11. We see a news part, part, article, bandana links acts of courage. Uh, Rockland man died after helping others on September 11th. Yeah. Now, I would like to focus this part of the show on Wells Crowther because we're going to make something good of something bad. Good. Now, whether you believe... 9-11 was an inside job. It was. A fake demolition. That too. The reality is there were people there sure. that did some pretty Collateral amazing damage, things we know. on those days. It's, in, so it's unfortunate. He was uh, a fir- the firstborn of three children, and he was a volunteer firefighter. firefighter. Mm-hmm. Well, he'd always worn a red bandana. And his dad had given him one at a young age, and he always wore it in his right hip pocket. Like a fucking blood. (laughs) (laughs) But that was his, you know, everybody's kind of got their thing. Yeah. So anyway. What's your thing, Chris? uh, White t-shirt. White t-shirt. Yeah. White t-shirt. So uh, at 16. And anal beads. He joined his father as a a volunteer firefighter and became a junior member of the Empire Hook and Ladder Company. He later went pretty to... pretty sick name, dude. Empire, Empire Hook and Ladder, Ladder Company? Yeah. Fuck yeah. He later attended Boston College, where he played lacrosse. Of course. And in 1999, Crowther graduated with honors with a degree in economics. Very nice. So then he moves to uh, New York, gets a job as an equities trader. Oh. And he worked on the 104th floor of the South Tower. Whoa. His dream was to join the FDNY... The FBI right. or the CIA. Oh, boy. Okay. News for you, buddy. You do you went out a better way, trust me. On September 11th, 2001, nine minutes after 
uh, United Airlines Flight 175 struck the South Tower, which was between floors 77 and 85 at 9.03 a.m. Crowder, Crowder, excuse me, called his mother from his office at 9.12 and left a, mo- a message and said, Damn. Mom, this is Wells. I wanted you to know that I'm okay. He then made his way to the 78th floor sky lobby where he encountered a group of survivors, including a badly burned Ling Young, who worked on the 86th floor in New York's Department of Taxation and Finance. Young had been among a group of people waiting at a bank of elevators to evacuate when the plane hit the towers um, and was one of 17 survivors from at or above the impacted floors in the Twin Towers. Wow. Are you seeing the connection here? Sure. Crowther, carrying a young woman on his back, directed them to the one working stairway. The survivors followed him 17 floors down where he dropped off the woman he was carrying before heading back upstairs to assist others. By the time he returned to the 78th floor, he had a bandana around his nose and mouth to protect him from the smoke and haze. He had found another group of survivors, which included AON Corp employee Judy Wayne, who worked on the 103rd floor, was in pain from a broken arm, cracked ribs, and a punctured lung. According to Wayne, Crowther assisted in putting out fires and administering first aid. He then announced to the group, everyone who can stand, stand now. If you can help others, do so. He directed this group downstairs as well. As occupants of the tower headed for the street, Crowther returned up the stairs to help others. He was last seen do so with members of the FDNY before the South Tower collapsed at 9.59 a.m. I get chills when I Mm -hmm. think about this man's heroism. It's just beyond bravery. Sure. Crowther's body was found in March uh, 2002. Wow. Along several firefighters and emergency workers bunched in a suspected command post in the South Tower lobby. Damn, that's yes. crazy. The New York uh, m- Medical Examiner's Office said his body was found intact with no signs of burns and that authorities speculated that he was aiding to the rescue effort um, as a civilian usher when the building collapsed. <clears throat> Damn, so he just died from like smoke inhalation probably? No, no, no. Oh. He made it all the way back down yeah. after getting saving those and just, 18 plus and people. And on him? He was in the command center downstairs, yeah. and he was shuttling people outside yeah. of the building. Yeah, and that's he got the building collapsed on him. Yeah, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so that's crazy. Yes, Crowther's family was unaware of the details of his activities between his last phone call to his mom and his death until Allison Crowther read Julie Wayne's firsthand account in the New York Times of being saved by a man in a red bandana. Whoa. Which so le- she's definitely told the story by somebody else. Which led to Allison meeting with the people Wells had saved. Was it the person who gave her the ring? Hold on. Okay. Including Wayne and Young. They confirmed from photographs the identity of the man who aided them. Yeah. A mostly completed uh, New York City firefighter application was discovered in his home after his death. Wow. Yeah. Chills. According to survivor accounts, Crowther saved as many as 18 people wow. following the attack. Well, they sure didn't give him any couple extra for that even 20, huh? 
No, I mean, I mean, they there's so much documentation on this. You know, it's pretty amazing that they can put all this stuff together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was posthumously uh, named an honorary New York City firefighter by Commissioner Nicholas uh, Scapetta. Yeah, and um, uh, there's a few charities in his name. That's nice. Yeah. So if you are inspired by hearing this portion of the story, you know, know that. Uh, you, you just do some reading on this man. It was he's a fascinating, fascinating person. There was also a documentary made on Wells. Uh, in 2017, it came out. It's called The Man in the Red Bandana. Cool. Narrated by Gwyneth Paltrow. I've not seen it, mm-hmm. but I probably will after just learning about this guy's story. Anyway, cool. back to Brendan. Tanya, I remember, the first time we talked about it, I asked her, do you know the guy with the red bandana? that they were talking about. And she said, yeah, he saved my life. Wow. So, yeah, obviously. She read about him on the newspaper. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to do this, here's the thing. If I was going to do this, I wouldn't go that big. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? She went big. Yeah. So, Allison, who. She got to meet Rudy because of it. Allison, who is Wells' mother, says, well, she came to me and she said, well, she's a little reluctant to meet with you. Um, she had some unfortunate experiences with other families, being very angry that she survived and their loved ones didn't. And she would like to meet with you, but very privately. It has to be very privately. And I said, well, fine, you know, we'll meet. We're members of the Princeton Club and have dinner there. She seemed very grateful and we were, you know, very pleased. It was a beautiful thing. We were, we were very moved that she had been saved, and obviously it meant so much to her. Well, Tanya says, I find that family members of people who were killed, they want to know what happened. But I just, I just don't want to put those images into their, their heads. They don't. They don't have to know. They don't have to know how their loved ones died. I think it's better if if they just don't know because I saw so much suffering on that floor to the, to the degree where it's just something that I don't want to share with anyone. I'm just kind of keeping it to myself. It's a secret that you carry with you. It's, and it becomes a burden because you really can't really share with a lot of people out there mm-hmm. who, who wants to, who wants to talk about body parts and blood and carnage. There's nobody. There's not that many people you can talk to about that. Well, this point, we are introduced to survivor Linda Gromley. And she's giving a tour at Ground Zero. And she's in front of some people. And she's like, my head was covered. But when the second plane crashed, I had to run for my life. Okay, this is where the tower number two, the South Tower, that's where it got hit. These were 110 stories. They were so tall that sometimes the people who came into work that worked on the upper floors looked down on the clouds. You ever <laughs> been in the buildings? No. It's really cool. I've been in the Empire State Building. Um, you've been in that one too. But um, I, would, I remember being in the building and the, you could see the towers moving a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because they have that. It's like the springs. They're the designed, they're they're like, designed yeah, to give a little bit. Yeah, but the when they move, like the the blinds, they have those levelers yeah. that come down. 
the vertical part sure. stays <clears throat> vertical and <clears throat> you can see the slight movement <clears throat> in the towers. It's very interesting. <clears throat> anyway, uh, she says, this is one of the most important things that I do with my life. I'm a survivor of September 11th and I finally found a purpose. I know why I'm here. And it's to talk to people like you that come and want to hear our stories. So that's very important to me. Well, then we see Tanya in frame. And she's like, this is Tanya. Tanya's also a survivor. She's also Spanish speaking. So she's offered to help. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. She's also a survivor. And she's also one of my best friends. Aww. Tanya and Linda were like sisters. <laughs> they just, every time... We had any kind of event, whether it was, you know, like an official meeting or any time we went out socially, those two were always together. Well, Linda says, and this is from Vintage Video, she says, let's show people what um, normal people at the U.S. Open do. Are you ready? And then she shakes her head from side to side. And then she goes, let's... Doing like a bit? Yeah. And then she's <laughs> like, like, let's... Sketch. Yeah, it's kind of cute. And then she's like, let's show, you know... What survivors do when they're at the U.S. Open. And then they're up here looking oh like this. God. Because if you've been, and I don't know if you have, but LaGuardia is right over yeah. Flushing and it goes over, well, Shea and City uh, Field. The U.S. Open was yeah. always right next to the, where yeah. the Twin Towers used to be? Yeah. No, not where the Twin Towers used to be. Oh. Where the LaGuardia Airport is, where the planes uh, take oh, off the and planes land. take off yeah, and yeah. land. Oh, fuck. So, LaGuardia, that's right. Yeah. So... Linda says, Tanya taught me how to live life with grace, with courage, with the strength to overcome, to me, some of the scariest things that I've ever faced in my entire life. I don't want to live my life based on what happened to me. I want to live my life like Tanya is living her life, like going out and helping other people and doing something good with really horrible experience. We all... The, we see them next at a memorial, like a tree planting, and you can tell they're very close. Well, next we see footage from a mass from Wells Crowther's funeral. And Allison, Wells' mom, is there, and she said, you know, we had a very beautiful bronze sculpture of a phoenix bird rising from the World Trade Center. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, it is, with our message that, you know, good will prevail and that good will rise from the ashes like the phoenix and prevail. So we were dedicating that sculpture at church, and we invited Tanya to come. And the father, Jeff, says Tanya was on that 78th floor sky lobby, and she's here with us today, thank God, and I'm going to ask her to come up right now and speak for you all. Well, she doesn't get up there. Linda goes in her place to read Tanya's message message. And she says, I remember when we got to his service, Tanya was a nervous wreck. She couldn't get up. She couldn't read the piece. And she asked me to read it. And then we hear her read for Tanya. And she says, when Allison and Jeff asked me to speak today, I sat down staring at a blank screen and I cried, unable to find words, the right words to say. What exactly do you say to a family of the man who saved your life and gave his in the process? And then it goes on for a bit. And then she finishes by saying, Wells was my hero too, because he saved Tanya. This is Linda saying this. Well, Allison, the mother says, it was all part of this beautiful service that was filled with love and hope. And we were extremely moved. And at the end of her speech that Tanya wrote, 
we see Linda finish it up and she pulls out a red bandana and says, hey, Wells, I'm prepared. It's obviously a very moving speech. And Allison describes that she's paralyzed watching it and she couldn't believe these amazing things that she was saying about her son. And uh, they kept saying over and again, you have no idea what your son faced that day. And I mean, this is the part of the movie where I got chills. Yeah, because you're wondering who told her this story. Well, not that, but I was so caught up with Wells and his heroism that I was able to remove her fuckery yeah. and step out of that and recognize what of a badass this guy was. Sure. Well, Tanya said, we're going to move on. Tanya says, now that Dave is gone because we were going to have the wedding on October 12th, which is what, Dave? It's a month and a day later. It's my fucking birthday. Happy respect. birthday, dude. We never really filed the marriage certificate here in New York. So in the eyes of law, we weren't married. There was no need for us to file it because we were going to get married here October 12th. So when he died, that was a huge problem for me. But I was able to solve that with the help of a lawyer <laughs> and a judge um, ended up marrying us posthumously, which was the saddest thing in the world to become a widow, you know, like that. But it's strange. Oh, boy. Yeah. I don't know how legal that is. Well, I was thinking the same thing. Most posthumously? Yeah. And how do you make that happen? <laughs> because you have to have some sort of supporting documentation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and at this point, I'm thinking... Fast-tracked. Well, how? What do you do? Do you take pictures from Manti Teo? It. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're gonna have to Manti Teo it, but you're gonna have to have his information, right? I, I don't really know um, what the deal's going on over here. I mean, well, this lady uh, apparently was married to a man named Dave that worked at the. At the or maybe it's just all bullshit. Probably and it all didn't bullshit. happen. And that's what I'm thinking at this point. Probably is, all bullshit. Did she do this or is it just complete shit? So Linda says, Tanya. This lady stole my identity. <laughs> do not use my name in this documentary. It's not it's just like some Dave Damashak from fucking Chubbuck, Idaho or something. Dave Damashak. From a, Chubbuck. He's a radio host. Like a radio he's guy. a real person? Dave Damashak, yeah. Is he from Chubbuck? No, he's uh, from, I don't know where he's from. That'd be, that'd be but he's a radio guy here in LA. It's fucking well, annoying as shit. Linda says Tanya this year was very, very distant from all of us. And she had been in denial for years about her husband dying. Well, Janice, she says there were times when I was concerned that she would hurt herself, maybe commit suicide, because she would sometimes say that she wanted to die. And a couple of the other board members and I would talk about that, and we were concerned at times that she might take her own life. Well, Linda says Tanya was in the middle of doing this very intensive therapy called flooding to face Dave's death. Now, I don't know anything about flooding, but it kind of reminds me of scream therapy. But we see a textbook with a chapter that's titled Flooding, and the first sentence is, one simple form of exposure treatment is that of flooding, where the person is immersed in the fear reflux until the fear itself fades away. So then we see something on the screen that says, flooding therapy desensitizes trauma. Well, Janice says, 
you would tell your story to a therapist and you would record it. And Linda says, and if you have to keep reliving over and over again the experience of the tragic or traumatic event that you went through in your life, that's the process. Well, she tape recorded her experience from September 11th. And Tanya says, I heard the engines. I saw people pray. You knew that you were going to die. And I was just praying, please don't let this hurt. Please don't let this hurt. Well, Linda says, I would be behind her and she would start circling around and the tape would play. Oh my God. Oh my God. The plane is coming. The plane is coming. And it would literally crash. And I could tell you, I could visualize the stuff listening to her talk about it. She would recount how her assistant was decapitated, eh. how everyone around her was burnt. She told me that her arm was completely severed and there was just one little piece of skin that was hanging off, where it was hanging off. And some man started tugging on her arm and she started screaming and crying because she was afraid that this man was going to rip her arm off. And she told me that she took her arm and she tucked it into her coat and it kept falling off her body. Is this a dream? No, this is her recalling oh, her experience God. in the flooding exercise wow. to get through it. And she's fucking nailing it. She's getting pretty specific, bro. Yeah, she's nailing the fuck <laughs> out of She's talking about dropping the turkey leg off yeah. and putting it back in. Yeah. Anyway, she started crying harder and harder, and she just, she'd be a wreck, and I would be trying to hold her up like I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Right now, even talking about this, I get so worked up that I start going into so much anxiety over this, but I did this for her because she was going to get better. Well, through this monologue, we see more graphic illustrations of the fire, smoke, debris. There's dead bodies and rubble from the scene, along with pictures of Tanya and Linda after the flooding sessions. Well, Linda continues, the nightmares were so bad. In fact, they were worse. I started, I started incorporating what she had told me on the tape into my nightmares. And there wasn't almost a night that I didn't have a building collapsing on me. When I finally told her, Tanya, I've got to stop doing flooding exercises with you, she told me I was a horrible friend. Wow. And I was selfish. That slut. How could you be such a selfish person? Yeah. Didn't I realize what she went through? Didn't I realize that the trauma that she had sustained was so much worse than the trauma I had sustained? I mean, how can, how can I live with that? By the way, this is why I do not attend any sort of group therapy sessions. Sure. Do you remember that scene in, uh, what is it, Fight Club with Meatloaf? No, not really. Yeah, where he's, you know, where Edward Norton is such a sycophant, he's going to all, or not a, a sycophant, but maybe a narcissist for attention, and he's going to these self-help groups. Like, people go to these things, <clears throat> yeah. like cancer things. Or, dude, like AA? Yeah. Buddy. I'm sure it's filled with that type of shit. It's filled with, pr not only that, but predators. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I just came to the conclusion a long time ago after Don't going, join anything. You know what? Stay away from all groups. Just get online. Hey, fucking, uh, that's what um, uh, um, George Carlin said. He's like, just let, in, in, let just be an individual. Don't right. join things. Let the groups destroy, destroy themselves. Yeah, that's not to say that I don't think therapy is a good thing, but you need to be very careful if it is a group outside of an institution. Now, I know that sounds ironic, yeah. but you go to a group 
that is like, let's say AAA, that wants to remain anonymous and has no affiliation with like a direct MD prescribing you the therapy. Yeah. Anybody can walk into those rooms. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen the sex. Lie through their teeth. Yeah. For, and, for, and For sympathy. Well, and just to talk to hear themselves talk. Yeah. And I've seen it happen. Uh, and it's really creepy. Yeah. So, um, you know what? If you're in pain and you need help, um, go, to the di- go to the Discord <laughs> and we'll put up a channel for you. And you can go vent in there. Anyway, Elia Zidano, she says, I actually became worried about Linda because I know Linda's still working through her own stuff. So I was worried that Linda would be that much involved with somebody who I came to realize was not doing well and seemed to be getting worse. Well, we're going to go back to uh, Mallorca, Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, The childhood friend, Sonia, says she was used to getting a lot of attention. As a little girl, she was always the center of attention in her family. She was the baby with five brothers, and she was the apple of her parents' eye. But she was a girl who suffered because she was heavier than other girls and had a complex. She was sensitive, and it hurt her if someone treated her like she was fat or ugly. And so she suffered because kids were cruel in that regard. Well, the reporter from uh, La Vanguardia says when Tanya was a little girl, her parents sent her to study in the U.S. She bragged about how well she spoke English and the good grades came very easily to her. Later, she became a very ambitious professional person. She needed to be the best at her work, the one who stood out. Her coworkers say she was savagely competitive. She surrounded herself only with people who couldn't compete. Kind of sounds like me and you. Mm. Um, well, next we see Jerry at Ground Zero, and he's there with Tanya and Linda, and he's speaking. And he says, okay, folks, welcome everyone to our walk today. You know, we're the members of the 9-11 community for mm. victims and family, the rescuers, recovery workers, and this Walk we're going on has been organized by the World Trade Center Survivors Network. That's the network they right. co-founded together. Right. Uh, it is an amazing organization and that there's no real hierarchy to it. Mm. Everybody just gets like together Antifa. and does the work. <laughs> but I want to recognize one of our coordinators today, Tanya Head. Oh, Tanya, give it up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we got some big news incoming. Jerry says Tanya began to tell me that people in the network were saying that they had some concerns with the things that I was doing. There were people who had told her that I was not representing survivors aggressively enough. Jeez. Then the board of the network basically... I came up with the whole story. What else do you need? (laughs) Well, I started it. The board comes in and says, we have these concerns. A primary person in that whole conversation was Tanya. It was Tanya who was basically running the meeting. Mm. Well, Janice says Tanya was frightened of Jerry, uh, that he had uh, was a hard worker, and that he started the Survivors Network, and I think she knew that she couldn't manipulate him. Mm. So she manipulated everybody else to go against him and pushed him out. Wow. Yep. So like James O'Keefe. Linda says she had me thinking that Jerry was bad for the organization. Yet in my heart, I adored Jerry. I still to this day adore Jerry. He's such a good person, 
But you have to sometimes separate yourself from you as a person and you as part of an organization. And that's what we had to do. Well, Jerry says, I'm very proud of the organization and the people behind it. They've done a great deal of work. And the night before our election meeting, Tanya called me in and started to talk to me about, you don't really want to come to this meeting now, do you? <laughs> well, that's the thing, too, about um, nonprofits. You are you have to have a board. You can't just be like a CEO. So the board can turn on you like at any point. Really? Much. Yeah, you can get fucked that way. 501c3 shit? 501c3 shit. Well, <clears throat> he continues and says, you know that type of thing? And I started talking and I said, yeah, no, I'm going to be there. And then I realized through the conversation that what she was really saying is that I wasn't going to be elected to the board or reelected to the board. I even said to her, I said, you're telling me I'm not going to be reelected? And she was kind of quiet. And I said, well, I'm still going to be there. Well, the next day I went to the meeting. And in fact, I wasn't reelected to the board. And I left at that point. I remember standing at the bus stop and, you know, having a physical reaction to it, just feeling shaken totally shaken, but not in a psychological way, in a physical way, actually shaking and just wondering how I managed to alienate all those people. And part of it was me sort of beginning to rebel against it. There was anger. Uh, what just happened? But it was mostly self-doubt. It was mostly like, what did I do here? How did this happen? The next day, they came out with a press release, which described the new board with Tanya as president and offices we didn't have before. So there was this mysterious quality, and I just couldn't put all the pieces together mm -hmm. and figure out why did it come out this way. Money laundering. <laughs> and I really haven't been active with the network since. Well, Brendan says, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm seeing this. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I keep trying to find more website one more website that will confirm her story. And I'm checking and checking and checking. Nothing. Needless to say, I didn't get any sleep that night, but I sat on the information. These people were so important in my life. They brought me back. You know, they made me into a human being again. I don't know what would have happened if I never met them. And I didn't want to lose that. You know, I just could see her making all these people go away, and I just couldn't do it. I knew deep down that I was going to tell eventually. You know, I just knew, <laughs> but I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was too scared because I knew the power that she had over people. Well, Elia, she says it was a couple of days before the sixth anniversary, and Tanya came over. She's frantic, and she said that a New York Times reporter was doing a story on her. Hmm. And Janice says they really just wanted to do a really nice story on her. You know, six years later, where is she? Well, keep in mind, she didn't really come into the, the, the scene until 2003. The, to the, oh, three, okay. Yeah. So this Two is years later, three yeah. years later, yeah. And then three years after that now. Yeah, but she at this point, she'd been claiming that she'd gone to Harvard and Stanford and doing all these wonderful things. And Linda says, well, she agreed to it, and I was happy about it. But as time went on, she kept pushing back. And she was actually acting very strange about it. And Elia says, well, he was asking a lot of personal questions that she didn't want to answer. And he was going to write a lot of lies about her. Well, Janice says they were supposed to meet, but 
she said she had another appointment and was going to be late. So they had to cancel. So he called her up again and he got upset and hung up uh, and she hung up on him. And then she called me and he said, he's asking me these questions. And why is he asking me all these questions? And I'm like, well, you don't have to answer him any. It's okay. Well, Wells's mom, she says, we got a call from the reporter, David Dunlap at the Times. And he said, hi. He said, I'm writing this story about Tanya Head. And you know, we just need, there's a couple of things we can't put together and put to, you know, place. And my immediate reaction was, why are you harassing this woman? Mm -hmm. She's been through so much. Yeah. She's 25 feet from the... <laughs> From the base of <laughs> Tower One. Jerry says, I started to answer their questions. And about a quarter of the way in, I realized this wasn't just a piece. This is an investigation. Mm -hmm. Investigation. Well, Linda says, as the New York Times was harassing Tanya with phone call after phone call, she told me that Merrill Lynch had arranged a family conference at the St. Oh. Regis. That, by the way, was that floor that got completely hit by the plane uh, where like i don't know how many people mm, died but it yeah, was a trillions of dollars lost we know there were 11 co-workers that had died with her and these family families wanted to know how their loved ones died and she was afraid there were people that she uh told me had stalked her over the years she called me that morning hysterically crying and said linda i need you to come now these people are so mean to me they're screaming at me I ran out of my apartment. I hailed a taxi. I went right into the St. Regis and I found her laying on the side of the hotel. And she kept repeating, I tried to get these people out. I tried to save them. I tried to save them all. And she's crying and shaking. Oh God. She kept telling me over the past six months that she was going to kill herself. And I figured this is the day she's going to kill herself. And I helped her up and I said, let's bring her inside to the hotel. Okay, they probably know exactly, you know, they were probably there. They probably arranged it. <clears throat> and then I went inside and I begged them for a quiet place for us to sit. And they didn't even know what I was talking about. Interesting. After a little while, she pulled herself <laughs> together. They didn't even know. Wow. And she said, let's go to the Marsh McLennan Memorial where her husband's name was. I believe that's in Midtown. Um, that's where all the uh, Merrill yep. Lynch people. Oh, I Great. think it was just for Merrill Lynch people. Cool. And we were just touching Dave's name over and over again. And she's crying and she's calming down. And I felt, oh, Dave's calming her down. Dave was calming her down. And all of a sudden she said, you can go home, Linda. It's okay. I'm going to be all right. Well, her friend Elia says she begged her to call the reporter and tell him to stop. I called up and I left a message saying, I understand you're doing a story on her. She does not wish to have a story written on her. Please respect her request, her wishes. And that was it. And after I hung up, she started yelling at me, telling me that I probably just made it worse. Well, at this point, we see David Dunlap's emails and they say things like, I don't mean to disrespect Tanya, but reporter's curiosity, vague points, omissions. Was Dave her husband? Where does Tanya live? Does Tanya work for Merrill Lynch? Where was she hospitalized? And, uh, you know, she's like, if he writes lies, you could just verify. All you have to do is just get Dave's parents to speak up. Oh, God. Or his friends. Well, Janice says, I called him up and I said, you know, this is a really difficult time. 
can you just wait until after the anniversary? Um, and then, you know, she can do the interview. And he was screaming on the phone at me. He's like, why can't you just answer the questions? Well, another survivor named Lori says, she was driving us absolutely fucking nuts. <laughs> she she was? Yes. She was, yeah. She was constantly calling several times a day to talk about this stuff. And everybody's just like, just fucking talk to him. It's the times. Yeah, What's your problem? Him, yeah, tell him, tell him where. Well, she had a barbecue every year at her house, Tanya. Yeah. And Brendan says, Tanya seemed to be having a lot of difficulty with something. You know, she was crying, running off the barbecue and everything. And Lori's like, the Times keeps calling me. The Times keeps calling me or whatever. She was no longer even con connected to us as friends. She was caught up in her own mania. And Linda says she's sitting outside with Janice, crying hysterically, saying, they're always asking these questions. They're fact-checking. They're questioning my story. And I remember thinking what horrible people these people are. Brendan's thinking, I'm thinking this guy's on to her. Fuck me. <laughs> because there's no uh, reason. Scummy. I love it. Not scummy, but like. No, he's no, 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 he's no, no, no. what I, she's I, been waiting I mean. for. That's not what I mean. I just mean like he's just like slimy. He's, he's, he's not, too much of a pussy to bring it up. No, see, I'm with him. He's a survivor. No, no, here's the thing. If you're wrong, one. if you happen to be wrong, yeah. you're fucked. Yeah. Okay? It's like it's like, uh, like if you're uh, claiming that a general did something like in A Few Good Men. Yeah. yeah and if you happen to be wrong, wrong, you get court-martialed. You <laughs> yeah, end up in jail. Yeah, because you couldn't handle falls, the truth. It's crazy. Yeah, but... This is the confirmation this guy's been waiting on. And he's like, okay, I'm not crazy. You know, this guy's on to her. Yeah. And this is great. But can you imagine being in that situation? No. Fucking wild. So yeah. anyway, here's Linda. Supposedly, this is like the sixth anniversary. Linda should be in her stuff. And she's worried about Tanya crying. Well, Linda says, I begged her. I said, just give me one piece of evidence that I can go to the Times and verify. I begged her. I said, give me the name of the firefighter that carried you out that morning. The one that was the one that handed you off and threw you underneath the fire truck when the tower came down on West Street. You told me that story a million times. You and the firefighter survived. Everyone else in Tanya's story had died. He was the only guy that was alive. Wow. And I begged her for the name of the firefighter. She didn't even know his name. And she wouldn't give it to me. She would not give me the name of the firefighter. She just wouldn't. Well, Janice says, I said, you got to get an attorney. Uh, I said, why don't you get yourself an attorney? This way you know what your rights are. So we're going up the elevator. And she says, Janice, I'm going to tell you my story. I'm not a U.S. citizen. That's why I can't say anything to the reporters. Oh, so I said, it doesn't matter if you're a, not a U.S. citizen. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. I don't think anybody will mind that you're not a U.S. citizen. And the deporter, like the <laughs> alien, alien. So they go into the lawyer's office, and the lawyer said, "I didn't have client privilege rights, so I got to go wait outside." So Janice goes and waits outside for two hours, and she's like, "I'll just be right outside. I'm your friend. I'm here for you." Well, yeah. then the lawyer calls her in, and she started saying things back to Tanya that they had spoke about in the meeting. And she was saying back to Tanya, you know, it's okay that you only knew Dave a few months. Okay. And now here, the story I had known was that she'd mar been married and they had this long relationship. Oh shit. And it's okay, Tanya, that you were only here for the, in the building for just one day. 
on that day. And I could not believe what I was hearing. I was like, I started to go into shock. Well, then we hear the lawyer was no, her friend Janice is going into shock. But, but like, no, but but I'm saying the lawyer's explaining like mm-hmm. now because she's telling the she's lawyer. Coaching her. She's saying, it's all right that, you know, you're not a citizen. It's all right that you didn't work at Merrill Lynch. It's all right that you were just in the building that one day. And then Linda says, Janice called me and asked me if I was sitting down. And I said, yeah, I'm sitting down. And I was having a cup of coffee. It was morning. And she started telling me that Tanya is not who she said she was. Well, Janice says, she was like, oh, no, come on. And I said, well, this is what I heard in the attorney's office. And both of us started looking things up. Well, Linda says she's not a fraud. She's a person that's hurting. And she said, no, Linda, her name is not what she's been telling us. No, oh, God. There was no husband, Dave. <clears throat> yeah. She didn't even have a relationship with Dave. We don't even think she was in the towers that day. Mm-hmm. Well, Elia Zid- yeah. Zidano says, I got the phone call. I was at work and I immediately started yelling right in my office. What happened? What happened? Because I thought she'd done something to herself and I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear it that she'd done something to herself. And Linda kept saying, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. And finally she blurted out the words and I wanted to hang up the phone. I wanted to yell at Linda and say, how could you say that? How could you say that she's a fraud? (laughs) Hell yeah. And that's how we're going to leave it. Cool. So, you know, fascinating, fascinating that obviously she's gone this length and we are going to finish up in part two and give you the aftermath. Um, Now, Dave, I want to remind the viewers, what is the point of our show? Why do we do this show? You know, for the viewers and the listeners and the watchers. And the goal of the show is what? Pussy. Okay, so and you know, maybe to try and get sluts you and pussies to watch the documentary. That's not gonna happen. So you're not you have no interest in watching this one. No, what this one really? Yeah, still have a better chance of me watching Valley Rising. Okay, and or um, Sugar Man. Okay, and I did have a viewer reach out to me this week and say, you know, you fucked up last week. You didn't ask Dave if he was gonna watch Soaked in Bleach. Oh, okay. So they're really we also wanted- fucked up on um that some day somebody messaged me. On uh, Instagram, when uh, you you mentioned that the, you made it seem, seem like the coroner was presiding over the case earlier, and I didn't, I wasn't crazy for that because even mean? even Grant messaged me. Grant on, Mastercraft, yeah. What did he say? He said that you were right. Chris totally said that shady as fuck coroner was presiding over the case. I did, possibly. Uh, I'm go back. It's okay. He wasn't presiding over the case. No, I guess he was just giving his in his. Uh, my apologies. His hey, my apologies. It's okay. Um, one I'm other forgiven. one other uh, correction and retraction. Corrections in, um, and retraction. In my uh, in my haste, I claimed on a plane was track nine on Nevermind. Mm. It's, all, it's <laughs> eleven, I believe. Oh god, nine eleven. So. <laughs> oh, oh, it all comes full circle. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's our show this week. As always, if you enjoyed the show or didn't enjoy the show, yeah. feel free to tell us we suck. But leave us a five star. Or it's free. Yeah. You know what? If you're committed, go with the two star. No. 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 That doesn't help. So it doesn't five star. Help. Five star or one star, honestly. Don't don't do two. Uh, polarize. And a half. You want to polarize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to be stern. You don't want to be fucking 
anyway, uh, you know, we hope you enjoyed this show as much as we did um, creating it. And of course, um, it's always a pleasure to hear um, your opinions in the Discord. So please keep them coming at us or always send an email. And again, your recommendations are crucial. And uh, we do have something we're planning on working for uh, the Halloween show. Yep. But just the way the calendar fell this week, Halloween show is a day after Halloween. Okay. So when you spend your Halloween this year we'll and it's over, what just, day is Halloween? Tuesday? just I've worked it out. Okay. The point is this. You're going to get extra Halloween this year. Okay. All right? Yeah. So um, thanks again for Broccoli Farms for sponsoring us. And we will see you next week with episode 64 of Down on the Docks, The Woman Who Wasn't There, part two. Yeah.